This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Rory Sutherland is the chairman of Ogilvy. What can I say? This is part one of three. We had to divide it into three parts because we spoke for almost two hours. And if we released it in one go, it would probably break the internet and blow your mind in the process. So we're going with a softly, softly approach for these ones. By the way, this is unlike any interview we've done so far. We get straight into it. I don't even have the time to do my usual introduction that regular listeners of the show will be aware of. It's totally in line with his contrarian and sort of counterintuitive nature. In part one, we discuss, what do we discuss? Um, how we don't perceive the world objectively, how we deceive ourselves. You know, there's the reason we give ourselves for what we do, and then there's the real reason. Um, he also says that marketing thought needs to be injected into areas of government and business more, where there isn't really much of a presence of marketing at the moment. And because marketing doesn't have that seat at the table at the highest levels, you can end up with decisions that are entirely based on economic logic and totally ignore psychological and more emotional measures, which often can be more effective. Um, he says you need permission to do things that aren't perfectly quantifiable. So in marketing, we've become too focused on efficiency as opposed to effectiveness. We discuss the problem of fame, how things become famous. I'm, I'm going to stop talking now and just say, without me keeping you in suspense any further... My conversation with Rory Sutherland. I'm so pleased you like the book. I'm really, really pleased. I really do. It's fantastic. It's just all my favorite things, evolutionary biology, psychology, marketing, all wrapped up into nice one nice bow. And um, in preparation for the interview, I read it three times. So I read it, I listened to the audiobook once and I read it twice. And it's just... Wow. Um, Everything. Well, that's overconsumption, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, in preparation for the interview, I had to do that. But every single time, I'm getting new insights and content from it. Every single time that I've read it, so it's just, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It, I have to say, when writing it and, and and incorporating all those things, I did feel okay while I was writing it. This is a job that has to be done hmm. because no one's linking. Uh, the fact, you know, very, very simple facts, like the fact that we don't perceive the world objectively and haven't evolved to do so. Right. In fact, what we perceive is a kind of uh, what you might call a map or a representation of the world, which sure. does, suits, suits fitness rather than accuracy. Sure. That seems to be an immensely important point. And, um, the, you know, the fact that we have a, a, a sort of ultimate motivation in what we do, which may be surprisingly tangentially linked to the approximate motivation as they sure. say in evolutionary psychology sure. that all those things seem important to marketers but equally what marketers have discovered through trial and error is quite interesting to evolutionary psychologists Definitely. so there's a whole field yeah. i think there's a whole potential for yeah. overlap here yeah. which we need to explore more definitely would you say that you are the first marketer that has explored this in this level of depth? oh no um i mean there are people like god sad uh, in the United States, Jeffrey okay. Miller wrote a book called Spent, okay. uh, which is very, very interesting on the evolutionary origins of consumption. Okay. But it's a surprisingly small field, in yeah, fact. It, it deserves really to be a much bigger field, particularly because I think it deserves, well, it actually needs to be um, injected. The, the information, the thinking patterns need to be injected into areas of business and government activity 
where there, where there isn't much of a presence of marketing. Mm. Because one of the things I've noticed is if you have B2B or you have a tech company mm -hmm. um, or you have government, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, in all of those areas, marketing is either a near non-existent field or it's very lacking in influence. Huh. And as a result, you can have decisions made, let's say at board level, which are entirely based on sort of economic logic. Yeah. Uh, where the marketing viewpoint or the perceptual viewpoint uh, doesn't even get made at all. Doesn't it? And so uh, those, I think, are very... I give an example recently of, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to buy an electric car and there's a subsidy for an electric car, but I wasn't prepared to buy an electric car until I had one of those charging points at home. Mm. So I went to get one of the charging points installed and they said, you can't install one unless you've got an electric car. <laughs> and so that's a classic case that no one in the Department for Transport has read Catch-22, yeah, you know. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah. so tell, tell me about yeah, yourself. Really um, how long has the podcast been going? Since the beginning of the year, uh, January, when I struggled to get anyone to even come on the show. And I'm, I was sort of really, um, I mean, my background is in B2B marketing, B2B mm -hmm. sales. Um, and I initially started the podcast as a way of generating uh, sort of clients for me, but then it turned into slightly more of an interest. And our, our focus is specifically on agencies, so helping agencies grow, professionalize their agency and sell. So we've been gaining a lot of momentum from, I would say, March onwards, where every week we interview a different founder or CEO of an agency um, to find out how they've done those things. How, how have they grown their agency? How have they professionalized and how have they exited? Um, and we've had, we've had a pleasure of speaking to some really high profile people. You know, we've had Greg McEwen. I don't know if you know his, his work. Um, yep, a little uh, bit. I don't, yeah. Essentialism, yeah, he was on the podcast last week. We've had uh, um, VP of Gartner, Brent Adamson. So we've had some really... Um, okay. One, one of the things, by the way, the fact that you're focusing on B2B is hugely important because it's occurred to me that agencies historically, and I, I never understood this, agencies have... Dis I and mean, we haven't been paid on commission since 1989, but agencies mm. still behave as though they're paid on commission. Okay. And uh, the interesting thing there is that um, uh, what happens then is that any organization, there's a huge danger that marketing becomes conflated with Marcoms, that right. people think that marketing is a communications function and it isn't. It's actually a way of looking at the world. And so organizations like B2B who spend typically much less on communication as a proportion of overall spend sure. okay tend then to devalue marketing because they go well communication in our case is mostly face-to-face -face. it's sure. not real and as a result when you devalue or, or sort of denigrate marketing um what you lose is the viewpoint that marketing gives you and I, I i've even said that companies that aren't planning to do any advertising and don't have a media budget at all should still almost pretend that they're going to do an advertising campaign or marketing campaign simply for what you gain through the exercise of looking at your business intensively through a consumer's eyes.
Okay, really interesting. And so I think in B2B, I think there's often the case that this, this danger, uh, Jeremy Bullmore used to go absolutely apoplectic if anybody used the word Marcons. Right. Because he said marketing is not, commun- you know, marketing is not communications. And if oh. you have a Marcoms department, it isn't a marketing department anymore. And then the danger is that if your comms spend is low, your marketing is accorded much less influence in the organization. And as a result, you lose perspective very dangerously. And I think in B2B that tends to happen. I think it tends to happen in tech businesses. The reason why most agencies fail to hit their revenue goal or reach their potential is not because the business development team don't pitch well or they don't offer valuable insight to the prospect or they don't have excellent ideas and creative. It's rarely because they lack talent and capability. The reason most agencies are not hitting their number is because their pipelines are too small, because they've not been prospecting. They don't have a proactive approach to business development. There are still far too many agencies sitting and waiting for the phone to ring, sitting and waiting for RFPs, instead of getting their value proposition in front of the buyer and creating the case for change. Now, after interviewing over 40 world-class sales and marketing leaders from Jill Conrath, Anthony Anarino, Jeb Blunt, and Brent Adamson. I'm running a small group coaching session in January in Birmingham, which outlines our approach called proactive prospecting. The process creates a predictable pipeline of new business opportunities by creating the case for change with your buyer using multiple touches from email, social, the phone, DM, and much more. It's the approach that I've used over the years to generate millions in new business revenue for agencies that I've worked with. If you're interested, drop me a line at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Because, you know, obviously, if you're a massive aero engine manufacturer, uh, it's a proportion of what your overall budget is. Your comms budget is going to be a bit of a rounding error. Sure. That doesn't mean you shouldn't look at your business through a marketing standpoint. Hmm. Well, I guess, I mean, the other interesting thing that I've discovered this year by speaking to a lot of B2B and consumer businesses, actually, is... The, the how much B2B wants to be like B2C, consumer. They want to be as creative. They want to be as innovative. They want to be as forward-thinking. But the, the over-reliance on data to prove that any campaign or any idea that they have has to work is sort of cri- crippling them, stifling their creativity. Well, well, well in, a, in a way, I suppose, you see, uh, one, uh, you will always have sales involved. And you will always have face-to-face uh, contact. So attributing success to marketing when there's also personal contact is always going to be harder because there's sure. much more noise. Sure. But the other, the other issue I have with this, which is that I think we're in danger of making our marketing activity, uh, the obsession with measurement and attribution is extraordinarily limiting because if you can only invest in things which are provably hmm. linked to an outcome. Yeah. Okay. Then you'll un- you'll underuse marketing. And my argument is that particularly in B two B, a lot of marketing activity is probabilistic, which is you do it basically not necessarily knowing how it's going to work, but simply knowing that the more famous and out there you are, yeah. the greater the chance of uh, fortunate connections. Happen. Sure. Yeah, and so so one you know if I if I was joking about this, I look at my eighteen year old daughters, they're twins, um, uh, and um, uh, 
if they go out on Saturday night, they don't go out with a specific plan, okay? Mm. The reason you go out on Saturday night is if you go out to parties, you might get lucky, and if you stay at home, you won't. Now, the luck <laughs> could manifest itself in lots of different ways, you know, right. sexual, romantic. Sure. You could learn about a job, pick up sure. some gossip, get invited on holiday, or get invited yeah. to another better party. Sure. Uh, but you don't actually know in advance how it's going to work, nor mm. can you necessarily attribute success. Mm. What you do know is that generally being famous maximizes opportunity mm -hmm. opportunity tends to be positive mm -hmm. and therefore the more famous now i'll give you an example you know if you're a famous b2b brand when your chief executive rings somebody up they return the call right hmm. now no one's ever going to attribute that to marketing you're never going to have a world which is so fantastically um, measurable that everything you do, you can evaluate the role that the marketing component played in your success. Sure. You know, people come to you and want to work for you because you're well known. You know, uh, people work for you for a bit less money because they want a famous company on their CV. People come to you with business proposals because they've heard of you. And sure. if they hadn't heard of you, that wouldn't have happened. You know, 90% of the phone calls, you know, I don't know, possibly, I, I, this would be a rough guess, but you know, 20% of the new business Ogilvy gets, maybe 30, maybe 40, might be there because somebody read Ogilvy on advertising, which is a book that was written kind of yeah, 40 years ago, but which is still doing its work in terms of keeping the Ogilvy name out there. Definitely. You know, the person who rang us up had read the book, you know, eight years later, our name was familiar. That's right. still influencing things. The extent to which we'll ever be able to put a kind of cost-benefit right. analysis okay. on, on David writing Ogilvy on sure. advertising is right. an absurd, you know, that's an absurd <laughs> quest, really, really, isn't it? Yeah. We're yeah. never going to be able to do it. Yeah. So we've just got to accept, and actually someone's got to win this argument, that you need permission to do things which aren't perfectly quantifiable. Mm. Um, mm. Because if things that aren't perfectly quantifiable are still valuable and you can't do them, you're missing out. Definitely. Was that one of the reasons you wrote uh, the book as well? Alchemy? Yeah, I mean, a bit of it is a bit of it is a kind of uh, reaction to the extent to which marketing and, um, and and particularly the advertising industries become absolutely obsessed with efficiency. Mm. Um, and uh, my argument is that the pursuit of efficiency in marketing, as opposed to effectiveness, which is a completely different matter, uh, is actually a kind of category error. Um, that um, uh, it, it, it's very, very dangerous to uh, seek to identify your target audience per perfectly because in many ways what your job is in marketing is to create customers as well as just to identify them. Sure. And I think too much marketing effort is probably focused on people who are already at the bottom of the funnel. Um, and, you know, I asked a question the other day, you know, which is a better ad, uh, a bad ad perfectly targeted or a great ad not very well targeted? And I argue that a great ad not very well targeted, but quite, I'm not, not stupidly not targeted, terrible, okay? right. but a great ad that's reasonably well targeted is actually better than a great ad that's perfectly targeted. Why? Because um, the, the creative power of a great ad means it works over a greater period of time for a wider group of people. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't seek to take a fantastic piece of creative communication mm. and confine it to a very narrow group of people who are already close to purchase. Yeah. Its power is that you can actually take it out there and it will work out over a longer time frame.
Mm. I don't, uh, have you read the book? Um, oh, Gordon Bennett, what was it? What was it now? Um, Derek Thompson. Uh, he wrote the book Hit, Hit Makers: um, The Science Behind Why Things Become Popular. Have you come uh, uh, he's written this one on fame, has he? He's written it on how things become popular. Anything, uh, celebrities, content. Uh, why the Mona Lisa became famous uh, because there are so many other paintings. Ah, yeah, that's that, a fantastic right. case, isn't it? Because it got it's, stolen is the actual it, truth it, of the matter. Right, isn't it? that's the reason. Yeah. Exactly. Every, yeah, actually, it was not. It was not the major feature in the Louvre. And if you look at it now, mm. you can't even get close to the painting because yeah. you have the additional problem, uh, which is that uh, you have probably. 200 million newly middle-class people right. in Asia, okay, right. who right. are now able to fly long haul. Right. And their mentality is they're in Paris. They're only going to be there once in their life. Sure. You have to see the Mona Lisa. You have to see the Mona Lisa. So as a result, you have this insane winner-takes-all effect where yeah. the room where the Mona Lisa is hung is rammed. Yeah. And there are rooms next door with works of art which are right. nearly as good. It's so this winner-takes-all effect, this disproportionate effect mm. of fame, um, is actually problem. I think I see it as problematic in all kinds of ways. If you take human migration, okay, the problem of fame is we all know this. We're all ignorant. There are cities in China which have a population of twelve million, and we've never heard of them. Okay, mm -hmm. but if you take uh, the existence of long haul air travel um, and you take human migration, then what you're going to have is that. Well, I'll, I'll give you a classic example. There are probably. Birmingham is, you're in Birmingham, aren't you? I'm in Birmingham, yeah. Fantastic, yeah. Fantastic city, okay. It's about a third, maybe a quarter the size of London. We can debate that, okay. Mm. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a tenth the size of London. Mm. But my guess would be if you had someone who was, say, ambitious and wanted to go to another city in order to make money, mm -hmm. you wouldn't get four times as many people going as to London as Birmingham, but you'd get a hundred times as many yes, because this fame thing yeah it's such a kind of self you know it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that you yeah. become more famous by more famous being more are, famous more famous you are and of course it leads to completely uneven uh, human movement distribution yeah you know so in other words probably people who move to new york in search of fortune mm. uh, are a hundred times more numerous than people who move to kansas city or you know, you know. definitely um and it strikes me, you know, all those cases where uh, thing, you know, and the Mona Lisa is the fantastic case because there are, you know, there's a Botticelli's Birth of Venus is, uh, uh, what is it? I guess it's a hundred yards away from the Mona Lisa within the Louvre. Yeah. And there are probably like three people looking at it. <laughs> but it's crazy. It is crazy. Uh, uh, I always ask this question, by the way, yeah. with things like, um, you know, I've got a, a flattened deal on the Kent coast. And I'd always jokingly say, you know, I, I ch chose deal because it's the 13th best seaside town in Britain. And my <laughs> argument is you don't want to go to the best one because right. let's say the best one. For, we, won't, we, we won't argue this. But what but is let's the say, best? Let's say exactly. it's Sulcombe, okay? Right. Now, the problem with Sulcombe is it's so well known as a fantastic West Country seaside town that the property prices are utterly insane. Sure. It's completely rammed in the summer. Sure. And if you try to go to a Sulcombe restaurant in August, you've right. got to book three weeks in advance. Ridiculous. Well, my idea of a holiday isn't one where you've got to book restaurants in advance. I yeah. want to get up yeah. you know, late and, and go, go where should we eat today? <laughs> right, and right. So yeah, that that thing where fame in a globe in a globalized world, uh, particularly with things like if you think about long haul travel, okay, it 
migration used to happen you know by land so people would travel through other places to get sure. somewhere bigger and sure. sometimes they'd stop when you have air travel um so i'll give you any, another example of this in terms of tourism with fame um you'll probably have an interesting case where if you take uh, um tourism to italy okay mm. what i noticed is that if you go to venice or rome or florence they are at Milan, which are places that people 4,000 miles away have heard of. They're absolutely rammed, okay? Mm. And if you go to Lucca, which is a pretty nice city, okay? You know, historic. Mm. You will see from, uh, from, from the east, zero tourists. And so that, that is an interesting problem, which is the whole thing about essentially, um, you know, a, a kind of out-of-hand explosion where... Uh, so I mean, by the way, I'm, I'm, not, I'm certainly not blaming Asian tourists for this. We're just as guilty, right? If I oh. went to China on holiday, sure. I go, "Ooh, Great Beijing, Wall of China, Shanghai, terracotta warriors, and I better see a panda, right?" <laughs> exactly. And I, 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 I think of four cities yeah. to go to, yeah. after yeah. which my brain would fuse. Yeah. And so, you get these weird things. Machu Picchu, I always take yeah. the piss out of a bit. Uh, people who go to Machu Picchu because yeah. there must be really interesting stuff kicking yeah. around in peru okay right. um that nobody goes to at all there must be fantastic i don't know mexican um uh, pyramid things um but everybody's going to the most famous thing in the country mm -hmm. and so long-haul tourism strikes me as inherently dumb compared to short-haul tourism because if you talk to english people whatever about italy they'll go where do you go in italy oh it's a tiny little place you won't have heard of it you know people are actually kind of exploring yeah. and they're intending to go back repeatedly and they find their little place whereas if you're only going to a place once yeah it's one of the reasons I quite like going back on holiday to the same place, which is, you know, you've done all the major shit, so you don't sure. feel obliged to do it again. Exactly. Um, and, you know, the great thing to do in Rome, yes, you've got to see the Colosseum. I get that. You know, if you go to Pisa, you've got to look at the Leaning Tower. But at least on your second visit to Pisa is when you discover Pisa. Because you sure. go, well, we've done the bloody Leaning Tower. Let's have a bit let's of a shifty. Of and right. let's go and see the rest of it. Yeah. And yeah. so those, the, what I call the one-off trip on a long-haul destination is, in mm. a sense, a real really dumb form of tourism how good was that that is the end of part one as i said we will be releasing part two and part three over the next couple of weeks he just packs a huge amount of depth and insight into every one of these so we will be releasing them periodically um thank you for all your feedback and suggestions again on linkedin and email write to me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com please head over to itunes and give us a review it helps us more than you would know follow me on twitter at nathan anibaba we would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters ahmed ahmed is our editor genevieve mageki is our booker slash project manager mariam begum is our head of research i'm nathan anibaba you've been listening to agency deal masters <laughs>